Well, I want to go ahead and invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles over to 1 John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. We've got a few verses that we're going to try to cover this morning. It's uh, the next section in a letter that we've been working our way through verse by verse since earlier this year and that we're going to continue uh, covering together for the next couple of months. And this is a text um, that I'll say maybe one that, that needs its own warning label. You know, like don't operate heavy machinery under the influence of certain medications or without the proper amounts of sleep. Maybe, maybe we need one of those labels for this text. It's a hard passage that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, not hard to understand, actually, for the most part. Hard to hear. One of the things we've been noticing as we've been working our way through John, if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, one of the things we've noticed in this letter as we've been making our way through it, trying our best to understand uh, what God is saying through it, is that John, the writer behind this letter, loves to draw boundaries. That's one of his purposes in this letter, to draw boundaries between true Christianity and counterfeit versions of Christianity. That he's drawing these boundaries because he wants to help his friends make sure that their faith is of the real variety, not a counterfeit variety. And that he, in drawing these boundaries, really likes polar opposites. He's not one for nuance. He doesn't offer many, on the one hand, this. On the other hand, this scenarios. We've been saying that most every week. I don't think we've seen a better example than what we're going to see in our text this morning. I mean, just listen to this. This is verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. How about verse 8? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Or verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Or verse 10 takes the cake. Listen to this one. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's one or the other. So if genuine Christianity is what John's letter is about, and if his goal in this letter is to try to help you understand if your faith is genuine, then clearly your posture towards sin is a really important sign. You need to hear what John's saying if you're considering Christianity this morning, too. Maybe you've come and you're not yet a Christian, but you're interested in learning more about what it means to follow Jesus. Then, then what, what John has to say this morning is an important word for you. That, that sin, what the Bible calls sin, is any sort of action that elevates yourself, your own interests, your own needs above those of others or above what God has said in his word about what's true and right. That, that, that for you to do business with Jesus will mean you also doing business with your sin. I think you especially need to hear this message this morning if you found yourself growing casual about the kind of self-centeredness that comes naturally to all of us. This, this is a hard message that we're going to be working through this morning, but it's a message that we've got to hear because this message could be the difference between life and death in your, in, in your life. It's that serious. And I think what you'll see in the few minutes we have together this morning is that if you press through the hardness of this text, if we don't try to dodge the blow that this text delivers or dull something of its sharp edge, that what we'll find through it, actually... In a way that might surprise you, what we'll find through it is hope, wonderful, life-giving hope 
for us in the fight of our lives. The claim at the heart of this text is straightforward. No one who knows God keeps on sinning. What we want to do is ask three questions of that claim this morning. And I want to begin, before we get into the three questions, by just reading the entire text. And I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to read chapter 3 of 1 John. I'm going to start in verse 4 and then read all the way through verse 10. This is God's word to us this morning. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I've said we're going to ask three questions of of the claim that seems to be right at the heart of what John has said. The first question I want to ask of it is, what does it it mean? Uh, It's it's not hard to trace John's theme. He's using really direct language here. I think he's using the most direct language that he can find to make a point about how serious sin is. He's, he's saying, I think, in a really clear, direct way that sin is incompatible with Christianity. But there's a, there, there's a problem here. There's a problem with what seems like the obvious meaning on the surface of these verses. Um, and, and the reason that there's a problem is some things that John has already said to us at the beginning of his letter. I mean, just let me give you a couple examples. Especially if you weren't here for the early uh, sermons in this series. Let me, let me just read you a couple of verses from the beginning of John's letter. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, everyone has sin. Verse 10 of chapter 1 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, he doesn't want them to sin. That's his purpose in the letter. But he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. I mean, the whole reason you need Jesus to save you is because of your sins. And that's what he launches into at the beginning of chapter 2. We have an advocate in our sins, he says. But here in chapter 3, he says, no one who abides in him sins. And that's another literal way to translate this verse. The keeps on sinning is a a way that translators are trying to capture what they believe to be the meaning of this verse. But the the verb reads the same way there that in the original language that it does back in chapter 1. When he says, if we say we have no sin. So no one who abides in him sins. No one... Who knows him, no one who sins has seen him or known him. Whoever sins is of the devil. He can't sin because he's born of God. Those are quotes from John chapter 3. And we've we, we got to figure out what those mean. 
Now, if, if you don't, if, if, you're, if you're not a, believe, a Christian this morning and you, and you are maybe not familiar with Bible studies like this one, then it might seem what I'm about to do for a couple minutes here, it might seem like, like some, some sort of hair splitting that's just trying to get out from under, wiggle out from under the really clear meaning of a text that's just inconsistent with itself. A guy who, who says one thing in one place, maybe put down his pen and went for a walk and came back and forgot where he was and, and, and says something different later on. So I do want to at least address the fact and explain why we are going to take it seriously to try to make sense of these two themes that seem to be out of sorts with each other. I mean, one of the main reasons we do that is not just to try to get ourselves out from under the implications of something that we don't like. It's, it's really trying to defer to this writer trying to treat him with charity and respect, trying to assume that he wasn't crazy, that, that, that he knew what he already said, that he's saying something different here. We want to show him, in other words, the same kind of respect that we would hope somebody would show to us if we had written a letter that was being read by people a couple thousand years later. We would want them to try to do their best to figure out what we were thinking and, 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 and writing to try to enter our world and make some sense of it. And that's what we're going to try to do for John here. There's a traditional way that, that a lot of writers have tried to make sense of what he says in chapter 1 about everybody having sin, and that's why we need Jesus to begin with, and what he says in chapter 3 about you don't know him if you keep on sinning. I think the traditional resolution is what shows up in my translation. I don't know how yours reads, but mine, mine translates these, these words, keeps on sinning to emphasize habit a kind of unchecked, ongoing concession to sin in your life. So, so not talking about occasional sin that's followed by grief and, and confession and repentance. The kind of sin that, that's still there, but that wounds you when you see it. That causes you to want to fight it, even when you're weak. It's not talking about that. The fact that sin is an ongoing reality for believers but this kind of like, giving into it, treating it, in other words, like it, it really isn't sin, like it isn't wrong. One feature of the text, I think, that, that supports this view of what, of what John is saying here is the word he uses in verse 4 for lawlessness. It's not a word that's often used for breaking some specific law, like there's a law that I don't steal and I stole. Therefore, I'm guilty of lawlessness. That's not the way it's used usually. It's more about like, opposing a kingdom or a rule altogether. Think bigger picture. Lawlessness is opposition to the rule of a king who gets to make laws. This word is used more often looking ahead to the cosmic end of all things where there will be a battle between good and evil. So it comes up in Paul in 2 Thessalonians when he writes of what he calls the man of lawlessness, some shadowy, mysterious figure that he associates with the end of all things when God will crush evil and remove it once and for all. That what has to happen in that battle for, for good to triumph over evil is that lawlessness, everything mounted in opposition or in war against God's ways has to be crushed. And when you just accept something that God has said is not uh, pleasing to him or good for you or for anyone else in your life, when you get casual about it, when you're apathetic, when you cultivate it even or hide it, that you are siding with lawlessness. You are, you are placing yourself under that opposition to God's rule. 
So what John means when he says no one who knows him keeps on sinning is that no one who knows him gives his life over to sin as if it's okay, as if it's not wrong, as if there aren't implications. Now, I want, to, I want to focus most of our time with a second question. That, that's what I think John means here when he says, no one who knows him keeps on sinning. I, I want to make sure you can see what John really wants to say here, which is to make sure we know why it's impossible, not just unadvisable, but impossible for someone who really knows him to give in to sin like that, to side with lawlessness. It is impossible in John's mind. I want you to see why that is. And he gives us two reasons why this sort of accepting posture towards sin, not a fighting posture towards sin, is impossible, incompatible with being a true Christian. He gives us two reasons. The first one comes out in verses 5 to 8, and the second one mostly in verses 9 to 10. I want to make sure they're clear for you this morning. The first reason that it's impossible for people to to be genuine Christians, to really know him, and then just to give in to sin like it's no big deal, is that being a Christian comes with a new allegiance. Being a Christian comes with a new allegiance. So we've already said that that it seems like what John has in mind when he's talking about sin here is not individual acts of disobedience, which are going to be part of all of our lives until Christ returns. He's talking about opposition to God's rule on the whole. Basically, what he's saying is it's someone who, whether they would put words to it in this way or not, realize this about themselves or not, wants God's rule to fall. Sin sides with the opposition. How do we know that that's true? Why is sin such a big deal? Well, the way that John wants to show us this morning is just to remind us that that we can see something of how God feels about sin from the fact that God has given us Jesus. The reason that God entered human history in the person of Jesus, the fact that God came to earth in Christ, shows us just how seriously he takes sin. John says in verse 5, you know he appeared in order to take away sins. That's why he came. Would he do that if it weren't such a big deal? says the same thing in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you hear that language, you probably aren't connecting what you're doing in your life with the works of the devil, but you should know that the, the devil's works throughout the scriptures are really just convincing humans to do things that seem like they're in their best interest, no matter who gets hurt along the way. The devil's works are, are works that, like the one he convinced Adam and Eve to commit in the very first sin recorded in the Bible it works like the the the, the devil whispering into their ears that what they what they they would benefit from is different from what God has told them is good for them God had told them trust my boundaries trust that I've given you everything that you need you don't need to go over here and do this thing in order to have what you need for a full flourishing life and they rejected that in in favor of their own sense of what was best for them. The works of the devil are showing up all around us right now in the, the, the justifiable, wonderful outcry against sexual abuse, which we're finally starting to pay attention to on the scale, at least something reaching, gesturing towards, pointing towards the scale that we should. The works of the devil show up every time someone decides that their pleasure weighs more on the scales than someone else's pain. Every time that happens, work of the devil. 
The works of the devil show up every time we treat other people like they're only means to our ends. And, and it works of the devil show up every time, even in our own hearts, we hold someone hostage for something that they've done to us. That is his work to convince us that, that our getting what we deserve is more important than our peace and harmony with that person. God, the works of the devil show up in all of our lives. This is not just something that's reserved from the imaginative novel. It, it, it's something we live with. And Jesus came to destroy them. He entered the world for war. He came to die in battle and to rise again in victory. And he came, friends, not just out of love for sinners. He came to the world out of hatred for sin. And all that it does to the world that he loves and the people who live in it. And to become a Christian is to side with him. How could you claim to be with him and embrace what he hates? How, how could you be casual about what killed him? You can't. If you are, if you embrace what he hates... If, if you're casual about what killed him, John is saying, then, then well, it just shows verse 6 that you don't abide in him. You haven't seen him. You don't know him. Being a Christian comes with a new allegiance. It means siding with Jesus in the war that cost him his life and in the war that he lives again to end once and for all. The other reason that it's impossible that John points to here is that being a Christian comes from a new birth. So the first reason it's impossible, being a Christian comes with a new allegiance. It's, it's taking sides in a cosmic war, the war of all ages. The other reason that it's impossible to, to cultivate sin, to be casual about it, to let it continue, to, to just accept it is that being a Christian comes from a new birth. This is the other theme that John fills out in these verses. Being a Christian is incompatible with sin in the way that John means it. Because being a Christian is not just a change of allegiance. It's not as if all of a sudden somebody just decides to change their citizenship to a new country or or, or maybe moves to a new city and decides to to root for that new sports team or or maybe follow some sort of new fad diet. It's not that, that kind of decision, a calculated decision that you just make and it comes with some implications that you accept. It's just a mere act of will. It's more than that. The allegiance change that John's talking about actually comes downstream of another change, a change that we don't control, a change that doesn't depend on us. And that's why this change is an absolute guarantee. For anyone to align themselves with Jesus, they first have to be born of God. John uses the language of being born again in his gospel in John chapter 3. Here he's using the language of being born of God. It's, it's where something that wasn't becomes something that is. Where something in your heart changes by his power through his spirit to set, a, set on course in you a new way to be that ends with your life reflecting fully and beautifully the glory of Jesus. And that's a process that's organic and unstoppable. It's one reason that John uses language like he does in in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, he says. And the reason is, for 
God's seed abides in him. That means what it sounds like. He's imagining God's spirit acting as a kind of sperm that leads to life, that carries into that new life the attributes of the life that began it. So he's imagining God's spirit's activity in the human heart like that kind of growth-setting, DNA-giving sperm. And when that's there, that growth is just going to happen. It just is. It's programmed and it's enforced. It's on the way. And that's the way God's seed in our hearts operates. It's, it's something God promised would be true in the prophets, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. He promised it, that there was a day coming when it wouldn't just be him giving laws to people and then, see, and, and, and then, and then us seeing from our own experience that we, we don't have what it takes to keep them. That, that in that day, he would actually put his law in our hearts. He would sprinkle something new on us. He would set his spirit on in us so that we will start to love what he loves on our own, in our, in our own lives, because we do love it. Not just because we hunker down, grit it out, and, and through a new act of will change what we were, but because his life would change something in us. And because it's him that's doing it, because it's his spirit and not our will that accomplishes that, it's not stoppable. It's not an if it's not just an ideal scenario it just happens eventually by his power and so what john is saying is that this kind of embrace of sin is just incompatible with someone who's being worked on by god's spirit won't happen won't happen it's unthinkable when god's seed leads to someone being born of god then what happens is change more and more hatred of sin more seriousness in fighting it less willingness to make peace with it and by all means yes to god's grace it is his initiative his decision his grace that starts this process that brings death to life but it is absolutely unthinkable for john that you could use god's grace as an excuse to roll your eyes or shrug your shoulders at sin not just unthinkable for him that you might do this. It's, it's impossible for you to do this, he says. No one touched by God's grace can make peace with God's enemy. No one who's born of God's spirit can embrace what God hates. That's John's message to us. And that's why he can say in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. So, I think the real question we probably should be asking is, I mean, where does that leave me uh, as a sinner who wakes up every morning needing God's grace, hopeless, apart from his promise that Jesus is always for me no matter what I do? Where does his sharp warning against sin leave me as a sinner? I want to use these last few minutes to try to press that question on you. So, here's the first thing I'll say about that question. If, if you, friend, this morning, if you have no interest in fighting against sin in your life, if you're not interested in that battle, then I, I believe because of this text, you have great reason to be afraid. I, I don't want to soften 
the impact of this text. John is trying to tell you that that posture, if that's in your heart, is incompatible with a true Christianity. Your posture is not possible for someone who knows and loves Christ. For someone who loves the Christ who came to the world precisely to, to do away with sin. Who hates it enough to give his own life to see it destroyed. It's not a posture that's possible for somebody who's been born of God. Who's taking on God's attributes by the power of God's spirit, not by your own power, but by his power working out in you. You may not realize it, friends, but if you are casual, accepting of the sin in your life rather than fighting it, you're choosing sides in a battle that's already as good as over and you've chosen the losing side. There's no neutrality in this war. If you have no interest in fighting sin in the way John is describing then, then in reality, you're actively choosing that sin. And in choosing that sin, you're choosing to be an enemy of Christ who came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Is that where you are? I pray, if it is, that God is speaking to you right now from his word, that you'll hear it. And that you'll remember the truth that I hope you've heard throughout our service this morning. That the gospel is not for people who, who have no sin in their lives. The gospel is for people who are not willing to tolerate the sin that's in their lives. There is nothing you have done that Jesus won't forgive you for right now if you'll trust him. And if if, friends, if you want to fight, if you want to stop just laying down and stand tall against the enemy who wants you dead, if that's the course you want to take this morning, then what you should get from what John has said here is that you will not fight that fight alone. If that's what you want, and that's, it's a great sign in your life that God is already at work. That the God who gives his spirit like a sperm that sets growth DNA trajectory that always ends in that person looking like him is already at work in your heart. And what John has told us is that if you want to fight sin, then you are joining with Jesus who came into this world precisely to take up that battle as his own. So, do not believe the lie you may be tempted to believe right now. The lie that the evil one always uses to keep you defeated in the fight. You might be believe that you are stuck. That you may as well not fight because you've tried fighting and you always lose. You might feel stuck and if you feel stuck, the reason you feel stuck is that you feel alone. You feel like you don't have any resources you can draw from that haven't let you down already over and over and over. You feel powerless perhaps because you feel alone. But in Christ, in Christ you, you are not alone. Don't assume that what is in your life is what will be. 
Because Jesus came into this world to write a new story out of your life. We have to know the difference between Christ coming just to show us what could be and Christ's coming to make something new out of us. Christ's coming, and John is pointing us to this in this text even, in describing his battle that he's come to fight. He, he didn't come to give us a YouTube how-to video. I've used this example before. I want to press it in here because I think this is, this is as good a place as any to work this in you. He did not just come to give you a how-to video and then turn you loose to, to figure it out on your own. He gives you what a couple of friends of mine gave me a few years ago when we inherited a play structure that had already had quite a few years of life in another backyard and it was going to come and live in our backyard. But the instructions for that play structure were long gone. If they had existed, I mean, I'd have been useless with those instructions. So I, I, I pull up I pull up into this yard, look at that play structure. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'd, I'd rather write another dissertation, maybe two, than try to take that thing apart and put it back together again. I'm certainly more qualified to write another dissertation. And I could probably finish it before I could take this thing apart and put it back together again. I could have watched 100 hours of how-to videos and shown up at that play structure and been instantly overwhelmed. I mean, I'd been like, that bolt there, I mean, that thing looks kind of familiar from those videos, but how do I, how do I get it out of there with this hammer? I don't get how the mechanics of this hammer get bolts out of wood. I'd have been so overwhelmed, I wouldn't have even begun. I mean, I... And I think that that's how we often feel facing the mountain of our sin, especially once we've got a long track record of failure. We look at it and we say, that's just not going to happen. Why would I even fight? Why don't I don't waste my time just learning again what I've learned a hundred times. I can't do this. But, but my friends, they didn't just tell me how to do this thing I couldn't do. They did it with me. For the most part, actually, they did it for me, to be honest. For the most part, they did it for me. They'd done it before, see? They had had experience with this. They knew what order to do things in. They knew what tools it was going to take to get this job done. They knew they could do it. Now, it's not that they would want to. It's costly for them in the way that overcoming our sin was costly for Jesus. It took a whole Saturday for them to do this job. But they knew it was a cost they could pay. Jesus knows overcoming your sin is a cost he's able to pay. And they were so confident that they could pull this job off that they actually even used me to help. They gave me a role to play in the project. Here, hold this. (laughs) Hand me that. Get me a little strip of tape to wrap around these bolts so we don't lose them. And as the day went on and I started picking up a little bit more about what they were doing, I got to remove or insert a bolt here and there myself. But even when I took up my little role in that project, the success of the project always depended on them. They knew what it was going to take. And I never had to worry that it wasn't going to get done if I stumbled in what they'd given me to do. And friends, that's the promise that John is, is embedding in this hard text. Christ Jesus, the same Lord who's behind everything you see here, all of it, he he made it. 
That Lord, he came to take away sins. He's going to do it. That Lord, he showed up in history to destroy the works of the devil that are holding your life back from what it could be. And when you're born of God, when your allegiance is with Christ, when you, friend, are a Christian by his grace, then your victory over sin, though it involves the fight of your life, that victory is not in doubt. It's only a matter of time. It's as certain as the blue eyes of a baby born to two parents with blue eyes. It's happening. It's as certain as Christ's own victory over the grave, which has happened. He's defeated death. He can defeat your sin a lot more easily than that, and he will. So, so why not fight with him? Why not? Father, would you give us the ability and the willingness to take up this fight with you and to trust you to win it for us? Protect us from the self-reliance that just leaves us more and more defeated and give us the confidence that we need that we can step out in faith, that we can step into this fight because Jesus fights for us and our enemies are his. Help us to believe that and embrace it by your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.